passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, church. This morning's text comes from the book of Habakkuk, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. The text can be found on page 785 of your pew Bibles. Please follow along as I read aloud. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty man, whose own might is their God. This morning's uh, text is the start of a short four-week series here at Crosswinds Church at, at our, both of our locations, focusing on the book of Habakkuk. A recent study put out by Crossway Publishing uh, listed the most frequently read uh, and, and well-known books of the Bible, all the way down to the least well-known, the least frequently read. And the book of Habakkuk was near the bottom of the end of that spectrum, placing 61st out of the 66 books of the Bible. It is a book that we don't know all that much about. As one pastor points out, we don't even really know how to pronounce Habakkuk's name because it's a loan word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's actually an Akkadian word. So it's a loan word from a different language. So if you hear someone say Habakkuk like I do or Habakkuk, both are entirely acceptable because we are just pooling our ignorance in how to say his name. Unlike other prophetic books, we know nothing of the man Habakkuk. We know that he is a prophet, as verse 1 tells us. We know that he ministers during the final years of the Judean kingdom. But any more uh, specific than that is simply just speculation. And yet, while the knowledge of this prophet and the knowledge of this book are, are scant, this is, without a doubt, one of the most important books of the Bible for today. It is a book that answers one of the biggest questions that is often leveled at the faith today. That question is this, in the face of so much hurt, in the face of, of so much pain, in the face of so much injustice in the world, why does a good God do nothing? 
Now this question is a relatively recent one. From the start of the Enlightenment in the 1700s up until about the year 1910, there was this widespread belief in Western society that society was actually getting better. You could expect your children to live longer than you. You could expect them to work uh, better uh, jobs and, and better conditions than you. You would expect them to face fewer dangers. You could expect their net worth and and property value to increase over time. Injustice would decrease and good would increasingly flourish. Of course, this modern illusion was shattered with the First World War and the death of over 18 million people in just four years. This was followed by an even bloodier Second World War, followed by genocides that became more and more common throughout the globe, and increasing skepticism toward those who are in power, toward those who have wealth, and more and more tragedies, both natural and caused by humans, over the past several decades. Then you fast forward today. And you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who thinks that humanity as a whole is on the right path, that humanity has arrived, and that if you just give us a few more years, then we are going to solve this whole problem of evil thing. Now, we live in a a world today that believes that the single most compelling reason not to believe in God is because evil runs rampant. Evil is everywhere you look, and if God was really who he says he is, then there would be no more suffering, there would be no more hardship, there would be no more injustice in the world because God would come and stop it. It is in this context that the book of Habakkuk is so relevant. The prophet Habakkuk asked the questions that so many people do today. He asked God, why? Why, God, why, when he's faced with suffering, when he's faced with injustice in the nation of Judah? But asking these questions does not lead him to abandon the faith, to reject the faith, but instead it actually leads him to cling even tighter to the God who makes no sense to him. And that's what this series over the next four weeks is about. What do we do when God makes no sense? Whether it is global, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much senseless violence? Why is there so much injustice and corruption? Whether it's personal, why didn't God answer my prayers to to spare my dad? Why wouldn't God take this cancer away? Why can't I and my husband get pregnant? Habakkuk shows us how to wrestle with God and then come out on the other side with a deeper faith. This morning's text, the first 11 verses of this book, really boils down to just one crucial truth when we are faced with times where God makes no sense to us. And it is simply this, a maturing faith trusts honestly and humbly in God's plans to establish righteousness. Let me say that again. A maturing faith trusts honestly and humbly in God's plans to establish his righteousness. Now that's a loaded sentence, so let's take a moment and just unpack it for us before we, we get into the text. First, Habakkuk displays to us a maturing faith. This is a man who is in ministry and has had his faith rocked after seeming silence from God for, uh, in, in response to his prayers. 
Here is a man who has been praying for revival in Judah for a long time, and instead of God answering those prayers with revival, things continue to get worse and worse and worse. But Habakkuk never loses his faith, and by the end of the the book, we see that his faith has matured as he wrestles with God. In a very real sense, the book of Habakkuk is all about faith. Many of us are familiar with the second half of Habakkuk 2, verse 4. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. This is a verse where God assures Habakkuk that he is just. It says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And we'll unpack that text more next week. But notice what it says. How are the righteous to live? They are to live by faith in God. Even in the midst of the incomprehensible, the righteous are to live through a faith and a trust in God's goodness, in God's promises, in God's sovereign hand, and that will lead to the deliverance of God's people. The book of Habakkuk is all about faith, even when it doesn't make sense. But more than that, it is also a book, it is a, it is a book focusing on faith that God's glory and righteousness will indeed spread across the earth. It is a faith that recognizes that evil will not endure forever and justice will one day have to answer to God and that God will fix the problems facing his creation. The book of Habakkuk is just one more link in a long chain of of promises that start in the book of Genesis immediately after the rebellion of Adam, the rebellion of Eve from God's perfect plan in creation. Notice the promise of redemption that is found just moments after Adam and Eve lead this rebellion in the prophecy that is given to the serpent in Genesis chapter 13 verse, or excuse me, Genesis 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the the beginning of the promise of redemption where God says, even at the beginning, the moment things go wrong, I have a plan to fix this. I have a plan to put an end to evil. And Habakkuk writes his book knowing that God is good He writes knowing that God is worth trusting. He writes still believing that God has a plan to use his chosen people to bless the nations. This is a man who clings to the promises given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where it says this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The book of Habakkuk is all about this promise that seems to be broken. Habakkuk asks God, how can you use us to bless the nations, to bring your glory, to bring your righteousness to the nations, if wickedness runs rampant here at home? And God answers Habakkuk in chapter 2. He reassures him of his plans and purposes and that they will not be thwarted when he says this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Why is the book Habakkuk in the Bible? I think in part 
It is to assure each and every one of us, no matter the season of life that we find ourselves in, that God has a plan to make everything right, and that plan will not be thwarted. That the earth will indeed be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that injustice and suffering and pain will one day be put to death. And it is given to us to urge us to have a maturing faith, to have a growing faith, to have a deepening faith that God is good, that God takes his name seriously. And even when he doesn't make sense, he is still worth trusting. A maturing faith trusts honestly and humbly in God's plans to establish righteousness. So in the rest of our time this morning, as we unpack this text, let's just explore this truth first uh, from the first 11 verses, first by looking at this faith that Habakkuk has, this faith that trusts God honestly and yet humbly, and then second, looking at the promise that he trusts in, promise of God's plan to establish his righteousness. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for this text. We thank you for your goodness to us. And as we uh, dive into it, we ask that you would be present with us this morning. We ask that you would come and teach us that, God, this, this text would seep deep into the hearts of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first, a, a, a maturing faith is a faith that trusts God honestly and humbly. Habakkuk starts with a complaint from the prophet to God. As I mentioned earlier, Habakkuk is written essentially at the beginning of the end of the kingdom of Judah. For decades, this kingdom, this nation has been harassed by the global superpower Assyria, and yet at the same time, it has maintained at least some semblance of self-rule. But during this time, the nation is spiritually and morally bankrupt. Judah is completely wicked. They experience a bit of a resurgence, uh, a bit of a repentance under the good king Josiah around the year 650 BC, but that's short-lived. Josiah's sons actually reverse all the repentance of their father, and by 605 BC, things are just as bad as they were before Josiah. And it's in this context that Habakkuk writes. Notice the language that he uses to describe the moral and the spiritual state of Judah at this time. It's found in verses 2 through 4. Judah is a place that is filled with violence. It is filled with iniquity. It is filled with wrongdoing. Destruction is everywhere. Strife and contention, contention flourish. The law, which was, as we saw over the last series in the Ten Commandments, the law given to Israel as a way for them to faithfully honor God and to truly love their neighbors is ignored completely. And when it is referenced, when it is used, it is twisted and abused beyond recognition. And it's in this context that Habakkuk prays and prays and prays. One of the most beautiful and powerful and unique things about this book is that it's profoundly personal. It is a book that is profoundly personal. To use an anachronistic term, we are given a glimpse into the prophet Habakkuk's prayer journal. We are given a glimpse at his prayer time, this prayer life of this struggling prophet. Habakkuk is the pastor who has prayed for revival for years and years and years, and yet there's no fruit. 
Habakkuk is at his wit's end. And his anguish overflows into his pen, crying out to God, why? Why? You see, Habakkuk is is not a book that is written to address the philosophical arguments for or against the goodness of God with the presence of evil in this world. It is instead rooted in the anguish of a godly man who earnestly longs for God to come and save his people, who earnestly longs for God to come and revive hard hearts to bring God's kingdom to earth and is met, at least from his perspective, with silence. And yet through it all, through all of the questioning, Habakkuk doesn't lose his faith. Just consider two qualities of Habakkuk's faith from these verses. First, Habakkuk's faith is honest. Theologians agree that Habakkuk is probably the most direct of any character in Scripture when he is addressing God. This is a man who has repeatedly asked God why. He's repeatedly asked God, how long is this going to last? Here is a prophet that is using language that you would probably expect to hear in the brokenness of the hospital waiting room after heart-wrenching news is received by the family. This is a language you expect to hear in the phone call after a positive diagnosis, when the hearing of, of, in the news of, of yet another natural disaster or school shooting or other tragedy. Language of why, how long, how much longer, God, am I going to have to be on my knees begging you, pleading with you to do something before you finally do it? And we'll look at this text next week a little bit more in depth. And, but this, this honesty of the prophet is even clearer at the beginning of Habakkuk's second prayer found in verse 12. Note what he says here. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Now, it's not readily apparent in English, but the language of Habakkuk's response, are you not from everlasting, is actually exceedingly harsh in Hebrew. Habakkuk is given God's response to his prayer, to his, his asking of why and how long, and he finds that response from God so unbelievable, and he essentially says, you're joking, right? God, you must be nuts. This is a man who holds in his heart two realities— The testimony of God's goodness and holiness and faithfulness as he reads in scripture, as he looks back in redemptive history. And yet he also sees oppression, he sees hardship, he sees injustice everywhere he turns. And he is unable to reconcile the two. He is unable to hold the two of them in tension. And so he says to God, what is going on? How long, O Lord? And yet through it all, in all of his boldness and all of his poignant honesty, Habakkuk never divorces his words, his thoughts from his faith. We see this in the fact that his question in verse 2 echoes the language of, of several psalms. He actually learned how to pray by reading the Psalms. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
Psalm 74, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? Psalm 80, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Psalm 90, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Psalm 94, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Over and over. Time and time again, the Psalms cry out to God in the exact same way that Habakkuk does here. Here is a man who is exceedingly honest, but unlike so many people today, that does not lead to an abandonment of his faith, but rather a clinging to his faith. Habakkuk is honest. He does not ignore the hard questions, but he instead wrestles through them with God. His faith is honest. But notice the second quality of his faith. His faith is humble as well. While Habakkuk is exceedingly honest, he's he's frank with God, he never spills into unbelief or abandoning God. This is first seen in the fact that he refers to God as the Lord. We know this language. It is a special name for God. It's revealed specifically to Israel. It is his covenantal name with them. It is an intimate name. It is a name that shows his relationship with them. And by using it, Habakkuk is showing his devotion to God. This is a man who is deeply in love with God, even when God completely perplexes him. This is a man who hasn't given up on God after long swaths of silence. The language, how long, implies that this is not the first time the prophet has come before God. Who knows how many countless times he has approached God in prayer. How many times he has laid bare his soul to God. Who knows how long he has persevered without an answer, and yet he has not given up. He refuses to accept silence as an answer. And we would do well to learn from the faith of Habakkuk here. You see, Habakkuk's faith is the perfect balance of of humility and honesty. He is honest. He, He brings his complaints to God, and yet he is humble. He never loses sight of who God is and who he, as Habakkuk, is. As one pastor says, it's almost as if Habakkuk, at the beginning of this book, is saying, I wouldn't be upset with you if I didn't trust you. What a comforting mindset, is it not? To trust God so much that we are able to bring our concerns to him, to bring our complaints to him, rather than feeling as though we have to bury those deep, deep inside us under the surface and never dare to utter them in his presence in prayer. Here is a man who has a mature faith, one that will only increase, one that will only mature as the book goes on. But even here, we have this powerful juxtaposition of a faith that is humble, that never loses sight of who God is, and yet a faith that is honest, that brings to God the anguish of his heart, that is honest when he sees a world that doesn't line up with what he knows to be true about who God is. Habakkuk has a maturing faith that is both honest and humble, and that's what the first few verses of this text are about. And finally, God responds. He starts his response in verse 5. And verses 5 through 11 are God's response to the prophet. 
Habakkuk has asked God time and time again, God, why aren't you doing something? And how does God respond? Well, we see God responds by essentially saying, I am doing something. What's more, he says, I am doing something, but you aren't going to understand it. And that's the thrust of verse 5. God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing the work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. God assures Habakkuk that he is at work. He's at work even now to fix the problem that Habakkuk sees, that Habakkuk feels so clearly. But if he were to tell Habakkuk what he was doing, Habakkuk wouldn't understand. But Habakkuk keeps asking, and so it's almost as if God says, all right, here goes nothing. Habakkuk, I agree with you. My people are corrupt. They have broken my law more times than you can count. If you who are finite think that you are upset and are aware of the brokenness of this people, how much more do you think I am aware of their wickedness when I know the very secret of every man's heart? Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm going to send the Babylonians, this far-off nation, and they're going to come here, and they're going to destroy everything. Nothing is going to be left standing. Their bloodlust is insatiable. Their desire for power is unmatched. They are going to accomplish my purposes in addressing the wickedness of Judah. In other words, if you were to sum up Habakkuk 1, this is how it unfolds. Habakkuk says, God, why aren't you doing anything? God responds, I am. You wouldn't understand. Habakkuk replies, try me. And so God explains what he's doing. And Habakkuk says, God, I don't understand. God is at work, even though Habakkuk doesn't understand it. And have you ever considered that the same may be the case for you? That the same may be the case for you when you are faced with times and seasons when God seems silent, when it seems like God is ignoring your pain, when God is ignoring your hardship, when he is ignoring the injustice and the corruption in the world. If God is really God, then it makes perfect sense that at times he would make no sense. Let me explain that. If God is really God, then it makes perfect sense that at times he makes no sense. If God is really God, if God is really infinite, if he is really sovereign, if he is really all-knowing and we are not those things, then it makes perfect sense that you don't understand everything that he is doing at every single moment in your life. God is infinitely patient with Habakkuk's complaint to him. He explains himself. And he essentially says to Habakkuk, don't judge me. Don't judge my character for not working on your timetable. Don't judge me and my character for not working on your timetable. That is such an important reminder for us today, is it not? When God doesn't work the way that we expect him to work, that doesn't mean that he isn't working. That doesn't mean that he is unjust or unfair or powerless or doesn't care. It means that he's not working on your timetable and in the way that you expect him to work. The pastor, Tim Keller, he helpfully lays out one of the ways that this plays out for Habakkuk and and his context. 
We, we are able to, to better understand what God is doing in this moment because we have the gift of time. We're able to, to step back and see things from a distance where Habakkuk couldn't see them by living into it. And we can, we can begin to understand a, a sliver of God's plan for Judah in this moment. Let me explain. Remember how we started this morning? We, we started by pointing out that the book of Habakkuk is at its core. It's concerned with your faith, but specifically your faith in the promise that God's glory and, and the, the knowledge and his righteousness will spread to every square inch of the globe. It is an assurance of that, and it, it inspires within each of us this faith and that truth. And Habakkuk is a man who believes in that promise, even though he doesn't fully understand it. Habakkuk uh, assumes that the righteousness of God the way it's going to spread and cover the world, the way Israel is going to bless the nations is through revival in Israel, a return to international prom- prominence as a nation, and eventually the blessings just begin to roll out from Israel to everywhere else. But what happens instead? Well, we know from history that in 586, just a, a couple decades after Habakkuk's book was written, uh, Jerusalem is actually destroyed by the Babylonians, just exactly as God has said. With the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish people are scattered throughout the known world in what is historically known as the Diaspora. Soon, Jews begin to live in modern-day Iraq, Egypt, Syria, Ethiopia, Libya, Turkey, Greece, Rome, beyond. They're spread literally across the face of the globe. And yes, under Cyrus, some of these Jews return home and, and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but the majority of them stay in the diaspora. They stay where they have been scattered. And with no temple for these Jews that live far from the promised land, a new form of worship develops in Judaism. It's the worship system that is uh, centered around the synagogue. And wherever these Jews live, synagogues begin to crop up everywhere in every pagan city, in every pagan nation. These clusters of Jews, uh, they, they devote themselves to the worship of their God in synagogues. And soon these synagogues begin to attract non-Jews. They begin to attract Gentiles who became known as God-fearers in the New Testament, those who attach themselves to the God of Israel. Now at the same time that Babylon has scattered Judah across the face of the planet, Babylon is quickly destroyed. Another nation comes to uh, prominence, Persia. This is followed by the spread of the Greek Empire under Alexander. And for the first time, as the Greek Empire spreads, for the first time in world history, we begin to have this lingua franca. We have this common language among all peoples. And so even if you are in one part of the Greek Empire or the other, it is possible for a a language, a common language, to, to spread information. It is possible for a book like the Bible to be widely spread throughout the world. Of course, the, the Greek Empire is soon destroyed as well. It's, it's taken over by the Roman Empire. And under the Roman Empire, roads were built and maintained in a way that up to this point had been completely unprecedented. Peace exists. The, the Pax Romana exists in a way that has never 
existed before, making travel actually easier to, to spread and, and to move, because after all, who's going to challenge Rome? So fast forward to the first century AD, and what happens? Well, Christ dies for the sins of humanity, and he's resurrected in glory. He, he provides a way for both Jews and Gentiles to have access to the throne of God, and soon this gospel begins to spread. It begins to spread on those roads that were established in the Roman Empire under the peace of the Roman Empire. It begins to bring this message of the gospel to a diverse people through a common language, Greek, and it reaches into communities where these synagogues are found. And who latches on to the message of the gospel most vigorously? It isn't the pagans. And it isn't the the Jews, it is actually those God-fearing Gentiles, those who were receptive to the gospel because they longed for the access to God. And it was all possible because of the spread of the synagogues. In just a a short few hundred years, Christianity becomes the most prominent world religion. The the gospel has gone forth from the boundaries of Canaan. And today it is the, uh, and today the the gospel spreads through the the work of, of missionaries into so many different unreached peoples and the knowledge of the glory and the righteousness of God is drawing ever closer to filling the whole earth like the water covers the sea. And all of that can be traced back indirectly, but it can be traced back to what Habakkuk doesn't understand right here with the destruction of Jerusalem, this message that Habakkuk can't get his head around. God's response to Habakkuk here in verses 5 through 11 reminds Habakkuk, and and hopefully it reminds us today as well, that God is completely and utterly committed to his plan to bring about a new creation. And it reminded Habakkuk, and hopefully it reminds us today, that we cannot begin to fathom the plan of God, the intricacies of God's hand at work in the world, and so we would be fools to judge God or to judge his character just because we can't understand what he is doing. A maturing faith trusts honestly and humbly in God's plans to establish his righteousness. It was true in Habakkuk's day. It's just as true today as well. If you are unable to comprehend how God allows such evil in the world, such pain in the world, such heartbreak in the world. Habakkuk 1 says, Be assured, God has not forgotten his plan. His righteousness, his glory, will one day soon cover the earth like the water covers the sea. One of the most well-known hymn writers of the 1700s was a man named William Cooper. Uh, A significant portion of of Cooper's hymns were uh, inspired by the many many tragedies that filled 
his life. He, uh, five of his six siblings died at a very young age. His mom died when he was just six. His father was distant, shipping him off to various boarding schools where he was bullied incessantly by older students. When he was old enough to pursue a vocation, he was interviewing for a great entry-level uh, position in, in British Parliament, and yet during the interview, he actually went insane. He tried to take his life multiple times and was actually sent to a, a, an asylum to help him recover from his deep depression. And it was here, in that moment, in this dark place, that Cooper encountered the, the grace of the gospel for the first time and actually became a Christian. And after he received a little bit of respite from this deep depression that he always found himself in, he leaves the asylum and he meets John Newton, the author of, of Amazing Grace, the, the beautiful hymn Amazing Grace, and he begins to be mentored by John Newton. They become close friends, and they begin to actually write hymns together, and they actually planned on publishing a, a hymn book together. Yes, for the churches to use to sing, but also, as was described, as a, as a testament to a great friendship. And yet, through all this time, even when he was spending time in beautiful Christian fellowship with a man such as, as John Newton, he still struggled with depression. He still attempted to take his own life multiple times. And in one of the seasons of, of respite that he experienced, Cooper wrote this, this hymn called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it was at the urging of his friend, at the urging of his mentor, John Newton, he, he said, William, I, I want you to write a hymn about what you have experienced and how God is at work in your life even when you do not understand it. Cooper understood in, in a way that many of us may never know what it meant for, for us to suffer. He understood what it was like to face pain and hardship and to wonder where God was in the silence. And yet through it all, he held fast to the immeasurable grace of God, not because he understood why God was allowing him to go through so much time to have such a difficult life, but because he was loved with a love that would not let him go. And it was that that inspired him to write these words in the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, and he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet it will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. When life doesn't make sense, when you are faced with darkness, Rest in the truth of this passage. God does not forget his promises. And he is at work, even when you don't understand it, even when you can't see it, God is at work to accomplish them still to this day. And even as William Cooper wrote, let us let God be his own interpreter, for he will one day make it plain. Let's pray. 
Lord, we ask for the grace and the mercy to remain patient with you when we don't understand how you are at work. We confess how strange are your ways, O God. How mysterious are your ways. And yet we know that you are good. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us, empower us to have a maturing faith. A faith that is honest, a faith that is humble, and a faith that is solid and confident. Not in anything that we can do, but in the fact that you have not forgotten your promises and you will bring your glory to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.